ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Clint Jasper and you're listening to A Big Country. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're heading out for a beach walk with a mum and daughter duo who are on a mission to keep their local coastline free of plastic pollution. We hear how they recruited their whole community into helping them turn marine debris into works of art. We'll visit the gem fields of central Queensland and hear some of the area's remarkable history, including a bitter battle over sparkling sapphires. And we're heading ringside to watch the action as young rodeo riders compete for the national titles and dream of making it to the big time of the sport. My plan is to, in the next couple of years, go to college, rodeo college over in the States. I've just recently qualified for the National High School Rodeo Association finals over in Rock Springs, Wyoming. So while, we're, while I'm over there, I get to check out a few colleges and stuff like that. So hopefully living in America and pro-rodeoing. We'll meet some of the young stars of the Australian rodeo scene with aspirations of making a name for themselves internationally that is coming up. First today, as many Australian bowls clubs battle to stay open, one thriving regional club has defied the trend by offering camping and hopes to inspire a national trail for tourists to stay and play. The Kandanga Country Club in southeast Queensland survived successive floods and the failed Traveston Dam proposal, which affected hundreds of homes and fractured the social fabric of the community. As Jennifer Nichols reports, camping is credited with its comeback. It's a bustling Friday night at the Kandanga Country Club in the beautiful Mary Valley. We serve meals six nights a week. Lots of bowling activity, more bowling activity than what we've had here for probably 25 years. Julie Worth is one of southeast Queensland's busiest women. As well as owning a bus company and taking tours to outback pubs, she's the treasurer and manager of Kandanga's Country Club, where lawn bowls is thriving both socially and competitively. I've been manager since 2009. I've been here since I was a child, actually. Mum and Dad played bowls before me. The quality of the bowls is probably nearly as strong as what it was at its best in the 80s and 90s. We now have about 68 bowlers and we got down to about 35. So, yeah, we're definitely going against the trend for bowling in Australia. Julie Worth says much of the club's success is due to camping. Caravans line one side of the bowling green. We are to absolute maximum capacity tonight. How many caravans and tents does that make it? We've got rooftop tents, we've got younger people, older people. We had a wedding last night, so some of those people decided they'd like to stay a little bit longer, as seems to be the fashion. Randall and Katie Nitschke are the newly married couple that held their wedding reception here. They and dozens of their wedding guests either stayed in local guest houses or camped outside the club. All up we had 120 people, so there's probably... 40, 50 people staying here. To have a reception here, what was it like? Oh, it's great, yeah, because everyone could camp here, so you, you could have a, a little bit of drink. So people could walk like 15 metres back to their campsite at night. It was pretty yeah. epic. We snuck down to the uh, train station, had a wedding ceremony there. and Some then beautiful photos. Yeah, 
and then uh, had the reception here. So awesome. And do you think more people should think about coming and travelling and staying at places like this to help bowls clubs out? We'll help communities out. But yeah. as you can see tonight, it's fully booked. Like pretty much every campsite is taken. Yeah. So it is yeah. getting popular. Yeah. Adrian Dan is manager Julie Worth's mother and a champion bowler at the club. How long have you been playing here? Over 60 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How young are you? <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> do you really want to know? Yes, I do. I'm 86. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. And to see this club thriving like this and so many people coming in, what do you think of it? This would be one of the best little clubs in the area and it's picked up with the campers that have come here. That's what's kept our club going. Yes. Yep. Mm. When did you actually start offering camping? About 2017-18. It just happened by accident. We had a caretaker here with a caravan and that led to somebody else wanting to put their caravan there as well. And then sometimes when bowlers came, they wanted to put their caravans there and now it's just so busy. What's this meant to the bowls club? Because so many bowls clubs have closed down. It's sustainability for us. It means that we can employ staff. We've actually got eight people employed and we've got five school-based trainees in amongst them. So the young people of the Mary Valley get an opportunity to be trained up in hospitality and also sports tourism. And we just make sure everybody has a wonderful time. Whether regional bowls clubs can offer camping depends on the amount of land they have and whether they can gain government approval. The Northern Territory and South Australian Bowls Club Associations say none of their clubs offer camping. Western Australia doesn't advertise any online. In Tasmania, the Devonport Country Club recently opened an RV park on site. New South Wales has a number of low-cost or free camping options, Bulladilla, Cassilis, Abermain, Molong and Mathura, while the Woodbine Tourist Park is owned and operated by the Lakes Entrance Bowls Club. In Victoria, the Broadford Bowls Club has a free camp stopover, the Kerrang Golf and Bowls Club offers low-cost camping and the Skipton Golf and Bowls Club has two sites. Queensland Bowls says camping is available at Theodore, Eidsvold, Wondowan and Boyne Tannum and the Gingin Bowls Club has camping next door at the showgrounds. Encouraged by the moderator of a camping Facebook site, the Roma Bowls Club decided to offer low-cost camping two years ago. Got a big, mostly empty car park at the front. We decided to go ahead. Secretary Manager John Hammond says by the end of this year they should have recouped the expenses of setting up privacy fences and line marking. We're shrinking members and we got to do something to try and sustain a future for the club. Back at Kandanga, Julie Worth would love to see a national trail of regional bowling clubs offering camping. We'd like to see the ones that stay here go on to other clubs. We have tried to encourage others and they've come and stayed for the weekend and taken notes and that sort of thing, gone back to their councils to talk to them and see what they can do. Yeah, because you've had to provide facilities and you've upgraded those. There's been quite a lot of work done and you don't charge that much for no. a stay overnight. No, no. We want the people to come and eat and drink in our club facility because, as I said, it makes it sustainable for our members and for our community around us as well. It's just amazing. The people just don't stop coming and our most asked question is, can we stay a little longer? On the south coast of Western Australia, Esperance is world famous for its pristine beaches. But this stunning coastline, about 700 kilometres southeast of Perth, is not immune from plastic pollution. If you look closely, there's lots of um, hard plastics of all different scales, so microplastics and then larger ones. 
Hello, I'm Emily Smith and I'm chatting to local mother and daughter Michelle and Sam Crisp. They come here to Ten Mile Lagoon, a short drive from the township, almost every day to pick up rubbish. And just goes to show, even in pristine aspirants, um, this is a global issue, the plastics issue. And it's not just from overseas, it is our local um, plastics as well. But one day last year, they got more than they'd bargained for. Yeah, so a couple of months ago we came out here. This is one of our favourite beaches to collect um, marine debris. Uh, lots of it seems to collect along here because of the ocean currents and wind and stuff. Um, and we did the classic scan of the beach from up the top of the stairs and couldn't really see much down there. Um, and then here's this huge whale carcass sized beach of, um, piece of marine debris down the end of the beach. It's probably from a long line fishing vessel out in the West Indian Ocean out near Africa. Yeah, so it was huge amounts of various size rope. Um, so from maybe, I don't know, three centimetre diameter right down to quite skinny stuff. The community rallied to help get it off the beach. It's been a real community effort to get it off the beach because we very quickly realised that it was mm. more than a two-person job. <laughs> um, so um, we got in touch with the Esperance Community Arts and they coordinated with Dullurac Rangers. And Dullurac Rangers have done a huge job of getting it off the beach and they took probably, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of, of it off the beach. And then we got on, um, made contact with the Surf Life Saving Club and all their volunteers came down and put in a huge effort and they dragged it. We undid it manually off the beach and dragged it manually up these stairs, which are huge. And yeah, it was such an awesome effort to get mm. it off the beach. But they didn't want to send it to the tip. Oh, definitely super important not to just put the five tonnes of marine debris directly into landfill. Um, that's just contributing to a different kind of issue in a different landscape. Instead, they work to transform the marine debris into something new. Well, this is an ideal opportunity to make it a community project, mm. arts project. So we're making, we've had um, a girl from Cocos come down through Esperance Community Arts, Jolie, and she's given us basket weaving skills. And so we've been feverishly making baskets and we've been making Sam's made a gorgeous hat, we make earrings, and so, but we've put the call out to all the community to make anything they want, an art, any sort of art piece. After months of work, an exhibition has just opened, featuring the beautiful baskets, earrings, ornaments and wall hangings made by the group. The community was impressed. Well, when I walked through that door and I saw that colour, I thought, wow. This is the Esperance Colours. We all call it the Esperance Colours. And it's really showed itself today. I think the, it just looks spectacular. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I think it's a real wake-up call to us all to think about the rubbish that we create or drop and what you can make out of nothing, really. Just bits of string. So I think it's a great effort, yeah. $1,500 was raised on opening night, which will go back into protecting the world's oceans. The intention is that we've chosen Tangaroa Blue, who's an awesome not-for-profit, that um, is dedicated to removing and preventing marine debris. So the idea is that all the sales, profit from the sales, will go to Tangaroa Blue, yeah. so that no one profits financially from the rope, and the rope goes back in a loop to help the environment. Mm.
Sam and Michelle Crisp, who led a community project to turn marine debris into art to raise money for coastal conservation. They spoke to reporter Emily Smith on the south coast of Western Australia. You can see more on that story, including photos of the big pile of rubbish washed ashore near Esperance and the artworks they turned it into. You'll find them on the ABC homepage. Just search for A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country. Still to come, the thrills and spills of competitive rodeo. We'll meet the young people hoping to make a career out of riding bulls. And we're heading to the gem fields of central Queensland. Today it's a haven for grey nomads, tourists and young families trying to find their fortune. But only decades ago there was a bit of a battle brewing over mounds of sapphires. Reporter Katrina Bevan has been taking a look back over the region's history. Heading out on his mining tenement, which also doubles as his front yard, Kingsley Fancourt fires up his machinery to search for gems. I've been associated with, with sapphires since 1966. I first came out here to Tomahawk Creek and I got a few stones and that sort of lit the fire and uh, came back quite a few times. That fire, that feeling of finding a gem and coming back for more is well known in central Queensland's gem fields. But in the 1970s, it led to some dramatic scenes, even inspiring the 1983 Australian movie Buddies. Everything they want, they're going to have to fight for. No, why not? That money was for the instalment. Stuff it. Have a go. Let's have a go. Some locals say the movie took some Hollywood poetic licence in depicting the time, while in other aspects they say it's spot on. So what really happened in the gem fields in the 1970s? To set the scene, interest in the gem fields grew through the 1960s and by the 70s, machinery mining had arrived. It caused a clash with small-scale miners who wanted to protect their claims and heated arguments ensued with the state government, tourism groups and the local council. In the midst of it all, Thai gemstone buyers also became interested, moving in and buying up big. Kingsley Fancourt was the local policeman in the gem fields between 1974 and 1976 and had a front row seat to the conflict. A lot of it was hoo-ha, and you've got to remember the small miner, he was living on the bones of his backside in rough camps, so his greatest weapon at that point was his mouth. They stirred up a lot of resentment against the machine miners and, and from their point of view, it rightly so, I guess, because they could see their, their part of it getting ripped to pieces. One newspaper of the time declared the period the Gemfields Cold War between the pickaxe and the bulldozer. Another called it the wildest race for riches since the tumultuous gold rush. As things began to heat up, Mr Fancourt was forced to step in. There was a lot of resentment and there was a lot of talk about firearms and this, that and the other. And, and of course, at one point, the mining warden had his tyres shot out, or four of them. The guy that did it decamped. In order to quell all this nonsense, I cultivated informant and found out about five concealable firearms and then I got the warrants at the different addresses and uh, did a raid, got, got Emerald out to help me because I was the only man here. There was a Thompson submachine gun dropped down a uh, earth toilet, the long drop they call it. That was because of 
the road I did, and of course it just shut the field down like that. Nobody was talking firearms or shooting each other or blah, blah, blah. Though he says the tale of a bulldozer being fended off by small-scale miners with rifles, also depicted in the movie Buddies, is not quite what it seems. Their problem was they wanted to stop the dozer. It was coming through to do a fire break out the back here. They wanted to stop the dozer because this area is full of what they call ballrooms, big holes under the ground. And because a, a 70 ton machine driving over the top of them would shake things and collapse. So, what they did is they walked the dozer through a different track away from all the holes and, and away went. And that was, in, that was a true story. Linda Drake, whose parents owned the local Anarchy pub at the time, also saw firsthand the effect the gem fever had. All of a sudden, there was the ability to be able to mine day and night, and that's what happened. But if you were going to go home at night, you had to be very careful because you had to make sure that the road that you came in on hadn't been dug up while you were at the party because that had, did actually happen. As things took off, Thai buyers also moved into the area in droves. And the price quadrupled overnight. And they set them up in a little caravan down behind the pub and there was, a line, there was a line of people waiting to sell. In the middle of it all, the Anarchy pub was also blown up by a disgruntled patron. Though it had little to do with the ongoing conflict, Linda says it highlights the heightened emotions of the time. Miner Murray Ungerer moved to the area in the 80s when most of the fight had died down. The machinery miners and the hand miners were starting to get along pretty good then because you know they were all given their own designated areas. He says that era helped shape what the Gemfields is today. Oh, I think it had a huge impact because, I mean, we don't need to pull huge amounts of sapphires out of the ground and all that does is just drop the price. You know, we've got the largest sapphire field in the world here and we need to sort of drip feed the market, not pour it in there. Discussions of the area's history have been brought to the forefront in the past two years, with the Queensland government reviewing small-scale mining. Its latest proposal is to cap claim tenures to 15 years with any extension at the resource minister's discretion. Many miners oppose the changes and are fighting them, but the state government says they would prevent people from living on claims without mining them and improve land rehabilitation. Regardless of the politics, it's a widely shared view that the local community is a special one. Here's Linda Drake again. And the gym fields really attracts people who are a bit left of centre and don't necessarily fit into other communities, but the gym fields is very accepting and, uh, and very loyal to each other when they have to be. Like, they can fall out over the silliest things, but if there's an outside threat of any sort or, or if there's something tragic happens, the whole community just comes in and, and supports each other really well. With 150 junior rodeo competitors from right across the nation vying for the top titles, the enthusiasm and energy here is infectious. Hello, I'm Lara Webster and I'm watching some of the young people in action at the Australian Bushmen's Camp Draft and Rodeo Association National Junior Rodeo Finals in Tamworth in northern New South Wales. I'm here to meet some of the young riders with dreams of making it big in the sport, starting with 14-year-old Lacey Bazant from Cowra in New South Wales. I grew up in Sydney with rodeo since I was two, with 
been doing it for ages. My dad's a pickup man, so he'll be helping picking up Bronx riders tonight. And I've grown up like around horses like my whole life. Haven't had much other experience with anything else really. So you're competing in the breakaway and barrel racing. Tell me a bit of your experience to, to date. Well, the barrel race, um, it was the first time my horse actually ran in this arena and we did take out the win and in the breakaway I did miss my calf but we've got another two days and I'm determined to catch it. So tell me, what's it taken for you to get here to the Nationals? How much work and time and training goes into that? We train like every single day. Connie and my, so my sister Connie and I would be up the back of roping calves every single afternoon or morning, it depends, throughout the day and then we'll just be on my, my barrel horse and just work him make sure he remembers what to do and yeah it's a lot of determination you got to really want it. What do you think the future looks like for you? I reckon the future I think it can hold a bit strong I like I would like to go over to America for like a couple of years apparently it's really hard over there like the colleges and all that but if that doesn't happen I'll just stay over here in rodeo. That's a dream 16-year-old Sophie Edmonds from Marundi also shares. I'm competing in the 14 to 18 juvenile bar race, the junior breakaway and the ladies breakaway roping. I've been rodeoing for about eight years and I started off in a local bar race at the Scone Rodeo and from then I just loved it and have continued rodeoing ever since. What is it about rodeo that you love that's just got you hooked? I love the atmosphere and all the like the adrenaline rush when you walk into the arena. It's just amazing. What has it taken to get to the national finals? What's involved in getting this far? I imagine it's a lot of hard work. A lot of travelling. Uh, we've been on the road nearly every weekend this year. A lot of dedication to be here this weekend. Do you remember your first rodeo event? You're 16 now, but I imagine you started pretty early. Yeah, my. Well, it was a local bar race and it was on my old horse, Duke, and we went out there and we won our first bar race and just got hooked. To this day, I've got four, maybe five Australian bar racing national titles and two Australian all-round national titles and hopefully this year, a couple more breakaway roping titles to my name. There are so many young people here uh, doing so many things, so excited about the future of rodeo. What's it look like for you? Well, my plan is to, in the next couple of years, go to college, rodeo college over in the States. Um, I've just recently qualified for the National High School Rodeo Association finals over in Rock Springs, Wyoming. So while, we're, while I'm over there, I get to check out a few colleges and stuff like that. So hopefully living in America and pro rodeoing. My, my biggest dream is to win a PRCA National Breakaway Roping title. Of course, it isn't all about the barrel racing or breakaway roping. There's plenty of up-and-coming bull riders here too, like Willow Tree's 15-year-old Bailey Searle. Um, I grew up in Goulburn, started getting on potty cars when I was little and just looked up to Dad and I was off from there. Do you remember your first ride on a potty car? Um, I remember my first ride on a potty car for the rodeo, Taraga Rodeo. I, um, I actually won it. 
set you up for success, Bailey. Yeah, yeah, it was good. <laughs> so tell me, how far have you come since that very first ride? What's been involved in perfecting your sport and, and how you perform in it? Oh, well, I try to get on many practice balls as I can during the week and Dad helps me with everything a lot and um, tells me what I do wrong and right, so it's good to have Dad here to help me, yeah. What's your future in the sport look like? Are you going to stay around? Yeah, I want to go to college in America and get a scholarship over there, but um, yeah, I want to compete in PRCA rodeos in the States and do what Kai Hamilton just did, so yeah. ABCRA Executive Officer Craig Young has been watching young up-and-comers over the years, and he says the talent today is remarkable. The uh, facilities, the tech, the way that uh, these kids are looked after, uh, educated, trained, uh, worked with is uh, a long way in front of where it was, uh, you know, 40 years ago when, or actually nearly a little bit longer, <laughs> when I uh, when I first started having a ride, and uh, you know, it didn't take me long to work out that you know I was a whole lot better at eating them than I was at riding them. So <laughs> I uh, I didn't keep up with it. You know, we've got now a generation of kids that are third gen, fourth generation uh, cowboys and cowgirls that really are born to do it. That report from Lara Webster at the National Junior Rodeo Titles in Tamworth in northern New South Wales. I went to the Bendigo Rodeo recently and confirm it's a great day out. More on that story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program, you'll find them online at abc.net.au. Just search for A Big Country. That's the show for today. I'll chat to you again next week. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.